and welcome to the Sunday Salon, the podcast that celebrates brilliant books and the women who write them. So, it's my final episode of season two and the 76th episode overall, not to mention the 24th lockdown isolation cast. Thank you so much for bearing with me as I've done the podcast remotely like this. It's really meant a lot. My guest today is Rebecca Lee, whose debut novel for When I'm Gone is a hugely moving and yet also uplifting look at family, motherhood, grief and love. Rebecca was such a fascinating guest. As well as being a novelist, she's a journalist for the likes of The Times and The Guardian, for whom she wrote a popular column, Doing It For Dad, about her father's dementia. We discussed all of this, as well as her childhood growing up in Cornwall and her time being homeschooled while her parents travelled in India. Her teenage struggle with anorexia, her abandoned first novel, her writing process, finding her voice, and so much more. I loved it, and I hope you do too. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for coming on the Sunday Salon. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure for me to to be here. I listen to it and I love it, so thank you. Well, that's lovely to hear. And as you know, I've got so much that I'm excited to talk to you about. And just to, to start us off, we're now not really in lockdown anymore. We're still recording remotely. I mean, perhaps by next ser- series, I'll be recording in, in real life again. But um, I wonder if you can tell me how the past few months have been for you. Uh, you've got three children, so I imagine they've been pretty full on because you're also trying to work from home you were already working from home can you can you tell me about that yeah well it's been I think like for most people it's been really intense I've got my three kids at home Uh, my husband who's a newspaper reporter he's been at home working and he doesn't usually and that's been nice in some ways having him around but it's also been it's been quite full on because we don't have the office space really so he's working in our bedroom and the kids are around and it's just really hard to get any headspace it's sort of thinking time there just isn't any. And yeah, so I think it's been, it has been a tough period, like it has been for so many people. And what about the the whole thing of publishing your debut novel in a, in a pandemic? How, how has that been? I guess you don't know any different. I don't know anything different. It's been disappointing. I think when it first started, we thought um, that things would be a lot clearer by September. And obviously, it's still a difficult time to have a debut book out. And in fact, the 3rd of September, which is when my book's coming out, is is um, there are so many books being published now on that day that were held back. So it's uniquely challenging, but um, there have been upsides in the sense that there are so many other debut novelists going through the same thing. And we've been supporting each other a lot. So there have been online groups and a lot of interaction, which I'm not sure there would have been in another year. There's been a lot of support. And in some ways, I kind of feel like it's it's just the whole process intensified. I think publishing a book has its challenges anyway. And this is just a sort of amplification of that experience in a way. So I'm just trying to go with it and enjoy it. And I'm still very grateful it's happening at all. I sort of want to come back to a few things you've you said there, but perhaps let's put them on the back burner yeah. and return. If you were to describe for when I'm gone, how would you and, and, and why did you decide to write it? I'd describe it as the story of a relationship. So obviously it's got this very sad hook, which is about a mother writing... Uh, So she's dying of breast cancer and she writes a manual for her husband to sort of cope in her absence. But it's not a solely sad book. It's about their love story, essentially, and the love they have for their children and how he copes in her absence. So it's got a sort of split timeline. Um, And what I really wanted to do with the book was to write something about um, 
modern life as I see it. So to be really honest about motherhood and about long-term relationships. And I'm sort of trying to express how it feels to be a modern parent and um, the uh, the sort of dying aspect of it, although it's obviously integral, is is just in a way to enhance um, enhance looking at the sort of everyday. So um, I think hopefully it's not just that and it's it's got an uplifting uplifting side to it as well and why did you just decide to examine that particular theme I mean one thing you write about in in the book is uh, this this idea of of writing a a a manual is is all the rage nowadays that's Mm. the there seems to be so many of us going through the same thing clustering on chat rooms like masses glowing on MRI scans I know that your sisters have had experience of breast cancer. What was it that made you want to write about this in particular? Well, this is this is actually a really funny thing. So I didn't set out um, trying to write a book about breast cancer. So I initially started to write a novel about, um, it was a ghost story, and it was about a mother who died, who came back to haunt um, her family. And that was my initial idea. And then um, as I was writing it, I was trying to work out how... Um, how this mother had died and it was quite important to me that she hadn't been murdered because I didn't want to write a psychological thriller um and I wanted to write something like I said which is very much about um life as I see it real life and how people experience it and that and those sort of everyday ups and downs and tragedies that we we all have we all go through and I really wanted to express that in in the fiction so um so breast cancer presented itself and it was but it was quite a subconscious thing obviously my two older sisters have been through it they're both doing really well which is great um but it was there you know it'd been in our lives and i think it touches so many uh, women's lives and increasingly so you know it's it is quite common these days for whatever reasons and so it seemed to me that if i was trying to write a book that was representative of sort of everyday life in that way it was a sort of plausible thing for her to have died from and um and then the breast cancer manual aspect sort of presented itself so I would I'd already written a lot of the ghost story and then I thought well hang on a minute perhaps she writes this manual to him and that sort of took over in a way so the book really evolved as I was working through it and then the ghost sort of aspect was stripped back a lot so there's still a hint of it in there but it's been taken away quite a lot so it's interesting to me sort of as the writer how much it's changed from the initial from the initial concept. Where did you get the initial ghost idea from? So um, it just seemed, uh, so motherhood is really hard work. It's it's really hard work. And you sort of say goodbye to the girl that you were, basically. Um, and I used to have this kind of feeling sometimes, you know, I love being a mother. I love my children. But where I was sort of, I used to have this feeling that I was haunting my life, my old life. I'd see these places that I used to go to and I couldn't really go to them anymore because I had these responsibilities. Um so a ghost, this it was just presented itself as quite a strong metaphor for the change that motherhood kind of wreaks on your life. So I just thought it would be quite interesting. And also, you know, women are still so often the kind of domestic pivot of a family. And I thought it would be good to look at absence, at taking that kind of pivot away and how the family copes when that happens. Um, and so the, the sort of ghost story, the idea of absence really seemed to work from that perspective. I'm really interested in the idea of examining motherhood in fiction because, I mean, one of the ways in which the the manual is a clever device, for want of a better word, Mm. is you can kind of get across the fullness of the, I suppose, the the workload involved and the the fullness of the the responsibilities from the kind of sort of small emotional things to just the practical, like the kind of the 
type of cheese that the children yeah. like and so on. I mean, of course, it was deliberate. You you know, you've already said it was deliberate, your your decision to examine motherhood. But I suppose, were you making a kind of feminist point in... I think, I think to uh, extent I was, yeah, definitely. Because um, I think... I think, firstly, there's this idea still, in some ways, despite all the mummy blogs, that that motherhood is kind of automatically ennobling. And um, I don't think it is. I mean, you're still just a person and you've still got flaws. And it was really important for me to look at that with a, a quite a flawed protagonist. Um, and um, it's the same thing with breast cancer. It doesn't, it, it, this is not something that kind of confers saintliness you know it's it's a really difficult hard thing um and people go through it and they're and they're still just flawed mixed up people with other stuff going on in their lives and I really wanted to look at uh, both of those aspects really and and so I, I think it was that was a feminist point for me in a way and also just the idea with motherhood that there is there is so much going on all the time and you can feel you know deep joy and absolute sort of terror and overwhelm within the space of about 10 minutes and that for me has been one of the, the sort of biggest surprises of it it's just how up and down it can be and so I wanted I think the manual is quite a good device like you say for looking at that um for sort of exploring the the, the sort of highs and lows um you know it really enhances everything in your life and it's amazing it's wonderful and I would I would do it a thousand times over but it's it's really tough <laughs> as you say one of the other aspects of the book is this extremely sweet love story that is uplifting but also does make it sort of it makes it all the more poignant uh, because it it's humanizing isn't it um yeah. and aside from the fact that you know you, you also have this this romance in the book how did you go about writing about death and disease and mortality without it becoming depressing because it would be easy you know to take a look at the premise of the book and think god this is going to be a, a yeah, downer I think that's one of my biggest fears really with with the book is that people just think it's depressing because I don't I don't think it is um because it is um, it's a sort of story about real life um mm. but it was really important for me to write about death because I think it, you know <laughs> we are all gonna die and it is a part of our lives and it's mm. something that we we choose not to think about most of the time we suspend reality um but it seems to me one of the most important themes in a way to look at because if you appreciate it then our everyday lives are so special and mm. amazing and fleeting and I really wanted as a writer to convey that because that to me seems to be one of the sort of fundamental truths of being alive mm. we don't think about it that often but <laughs> it's uh, it's all over so quickly Yes, so I suppose the end makes the the middle more special in in, in, yeah, a, in a way. It's just it's just that sort of quotidian, you know, every day. But actually, hang on a minute, this isn't because you know we are we we're all going to die. We don't know when. Um, and the love that we have for the people around us is this sort of transformative thing. And that's the other thing I really wanted to look at in the book is how loving somebody else can can sort of change us. It can alter and. Yeah, so that's another one of the one of the sort of themes that I'm trying to trying to get to. <laughs> Can I ask you a bit about you, your your background? You you live in London now, but you you grew up in in Cornwall. What were you like as a child? Were you always interested in writing and in in books? Yeah, I mean, I was a, an annoyingly literary nerdy child. I always loved books. I always wanted to be a writer. 
it has always been the thing for me. Um, and I grew up in um, a little cove called Portfora, which is about two miles from Land's End. It's a really beautiful, amazing place. My mum still lives there, but it's it's is very distant from you know it's ten miles from the nearest town. So it's it's lovely when you're a small child, but quite hard when you're a teenager. And yeah, it was it was you know it was a wonderful childhood. Really, lots of reading, lots of going to the beach, lots of time outside, and lots of traveling. My parents traveled a lot, so we spent some time living in Kiribati, which is this um, sort of island nation in the South Pacific, which is disappearing because of climate change. Um, wow! Yeah, <laughs> it's um, it's going to be one of the first places to disappear. And actually, when I worked for a newspaper about I guess about thirteen years ago, they flew me back out there to sort of report on what was happening and um, it's the first time I'd been back since I'd been a little kid because I started school out there and uh, yeah so we it was a really interesting childhood and we also did a thing where we, they took me out of school me and my sisters out of school and we traveled around India for for sort of four months when I was nine and those things were, were quite influential and we were actually planning to do something similar with our kids this summer, but obviously that was that was kiboshed by what happened so um, it's a bit frustrating. Just a few things that you said there that I'd just like to ask a bit more about. Um, yeah. Firstly, you said you always wanted to be a writer. How did you even know that that was a possibility? How was that in your orbit? Did you know people who were writers or where did that ambition come from? I don't know, really. I mean, I think just from reading, you know, just from, from understanding that other people were doing it. My dad uh, was, he had a garage and he'd left school at 14 and he didn't really read that much. Um, my mum came from London. She was a GP and she always kind of fostered my love of books, definitely. And she had, she'd had friends in London who were journalists. So I, I suppose I knew more from her that it was a possible route um, for a career. But it was from reading, really, you know, just realising that somebody's doing this and thinking that that's the ultimate, ultimate thing to do. And and the time that you were, were travelling, was that purely an enjoyable experience? I mean, it must, it's a, it must have caused a degree of upheaval. And, and, and what, what did you do in terms of schooling and stuff like so, that? Um, so when we lived in Kiribati, I was quite little. So it was sort of preschool. And then I think I started reception out there. But it was it was before schooling was really an issue. And then with India, we our parents um, sort of did homeschooling while we were out there. But again, it was primary school, so it wasn't really wasn't really a big issue. But I think the the being away certainly when we were a bit older was was really good for reading because you know we didn't have iPads and stuff, and we were just you know there was lots of travelling around on, on buses and and I, I read a lot on that trip and um, some stuff that you know looking back was quite sort of full-on for, for a nine-year-old like Ben Ockrey, The Famished Road and things like that and um, yeah I I'm not sure I would have done that if I'd been at home. You've written very movingly of experiencing anorexia when you were growing up. I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about that and also a bit about why you've written about that as a journalist and, and, and how how it was to write about. So it's not something that I've felt ready to write about until recently um but now I'm you know I'm, I'm 41 I've had three children and I've got to a sort of point in my life where I felt ready to and actually felt quite important for me to to write about it because it is part of my um it's part of my story and I think it you know it issues with eating affect a lot of women and it, it often aren't talked about and not even things that are as extreme as anorexia but just being very rigid about food and and you know I'm I'm not like that anymore because I think you know it's sort of hard-won knowledge and I've got to a place where I'm actually really comfortable 
around food but I know lots of my friends actually aren't and they're very strict with themselves or they even now after having children and I think I think that's really sad and I think the way that women treat their bodies is often really really sad and that's something that I looked at in the novel and it's quite profound I think a lot of women um, really are, are tough on themselves and tough on their bodies and I, and I wanted to sort of to touch upon that because it seems so pervasive and you know now with with what I know having been through what I've been through I, I'm sort of I think I have a slightly different perspective on it um but yeah it was really really difficult being anorexic and it was it was not an easy thing to get better from you know it took a long time it wasn't until I was about 22 23 that I I could say that I was properly through it and um that was sort of when I sat my finals at university um and I sort of realized that I was sort of out out the other side so it was you know it was a good kind of I guess eight years of not feeling okay around food and it's very it's very limiting you know I used to think I wouldn't be able to go traveling on my own or have children or do so many of the things that I've done now and so I suppose I wanted to write about it to make it clear that it is possible to to live a perfectly full and ordinary and happy life um despite going through that and and you know I had people get in touch with me after the piece um talking about that like one one girl's granny had showed her the piece because it was in the mail so it's obviously a slightly different readership and that meant so much to me you know that it that, that it could offer some hope to somebody so yeah it was it was for that reason really in terms of you you mentioned so many women have kind of a female friends of yours yeah. sort of have very strict um ways of eating mm. why do you think it is something that's so widespread among women and then less so among men although I mean it's seemingly increasingly so yeah. but I mean I think it's to do with the pressure that women are, are placed under to be a, a certain way I think you know controlling what, what you eat is a way of control trying to control your own life your own narrative you know um and it's a distraction as well like let's be clear you know thinking about food worrying about whether you're fat distracts you from other things and I think um that that's something that you know for whatever reason is it happens in our society a lot and women get sort of uh, distracted by you know thinking about things which aren't necessarily um, the most important you know you don't you can spend all day worrying about what you have for lunch or you can literally not think about it and if you're if you're worrying about what you have for lunch all day you're, you're not less likely to be able to go and do something else interesting um, so yeah I, I, I don't quite know how to express it but I think it's the obsession with female bodies definitely come from men and women take it on onto themselves um, in a way that isn't useful or productive can I ask about your career, how you got into journalism? What was your path in, in that way? So I did, um, I did an English degree and then I did, a, um, I did a postgrad in journalism at City and then I was shortlisted for the Times Graduate Scheme and I ended up working, I didn't get the sort of final, down to the final two, I was down to the final kind of five and then I got a job on the Times magazine and I was assisting the food editor and I was doing this column called The Taste Test where I was going around to all these chefs in London taking food for them to kind of blind taste <laughs> in all these kind of posh hotels and um, they'd sort of give their verdict on the kind of ready-made macaroni cheese or whatever it was and um, <laughs> I love those things I love reading those things I, I loved it and I loved it it was really fun um and I also at the same time started I did like a, a sort of beauty column I did various little columns for the Times magazine and then I started doing more interviews and stuff um 
for them. So I was there for about three years and then I went to the Sun for a couple of years and then I went to the Mail as a commissioning editor and then I went freelance um, because I was, I always wanted to be a writer actually and I went into journalism because it seemed to me that it's hard to make money from being a novelist and I wanted to have that kind of um, bedrock of of skills but my ultimate aim was always to to write novels so you know I'd love to be able to do both really. It's interesting that you've traversed the the broadsheets and the and the tabloids like that do you think that's been beneficial? I think it has I mean I, I, I had a piece there was one day where I had a piece in the mail and the Guardian on the same day and I was actually really proud of that because I think the diversity of the British press is something that's quite I mean there are definitely issues and I, you know there, there are lots of things I don't agree with but I think if you're a professional journalist you should be allowed to write for different papers without having to assume the kind of dominant ideology I don't think that's your role you know um and I think it's it's just brilliant that there are so many different newspapers and they're sort of they are under threat at the moment and I think that that's a that's a sad thing in lots of ways you know so um I, I'm sort of proud of of having worked for lots of different places. You wrote a column uh, about your dad's dementia for The Guardian, yeah. which you chose to end eventually. Um, can you tell me about how that, sort of why you decided to write that column? And then, and then also what made you decide to stop writing about that? Yeah, sure. So I, um, so I wrote an initial piece for The Guardian family and it was about being sort of in my 20s, but being my dad's um, power of attorney. Um, I think maybe I just turned 30 actually but I was young and I and I didn't really you know I, I spent my money at Topshop and I didn't really think about money that much and um, suddenly this kind of responsibility came into my life because I, my parents had got divorced I was my dad's power of attorney he became very ill and it was just this sort of crushing weight of responsibility so I wrote this initial piece for them and then they asked me to do the column on the back of that and um, I talked to my family about it and, and they were happy for me to do it um, and and so I went ahead and it was a really cathartic thing for me to do at that time which was a, you know it was a stressful difficult time and um mm. again it was about trying to connect with other people who were going through it and I had a lot of readers get in touch and and that was that was really helpful for me and I I, I sort of hope that the, the column was helpful for them but also I think with writing, you're, you're trying to make something beautiful. You're trying to make something, you know, you're trying to make something that sort of stands on it on its own. And I think if you're going through something hard, trying to make something out of it is is very consoling. So yeah, it was very useful for me at that time to be able to do it, and I was um, I, I felt privileged to be able to really. So yeah. And then you wrote a very moving final column in which you said that what remains is is just a painful descent, something dark and undignified that bears little value in examination mm. uh, was that a difficult decision to to reach it wasn't really I mean I think um the column had sort of served its its purpose in many ways in terms of raising awareness of dementia that and um in terms and and, and personally and uh I needed to for my family's sake I needed to stop at that point because my dad was getting really ill and also I just didn't have the time I was going down to Cornwall a lot from London I had um I was pregnant and I had a small child um and so it was just it was the right time to end it and I think knowing when to end things is is really important and I think also there's something here about first person journalism which I think often women they feel they have to write about their lives and I think, mm. that, I think that can be really problematic especially if you're a young woman and you're trying to kind of make it in journalism you know to know where the boundaries are but I also think that first person journalism can be truly 
transformative and remarkable and amazing and I love often love reading it so I think you have to be careful about when you deploy it but that you know you should by all means consider it if it's something that you you'd like to do well it's it's interesting that you say that about the first person journalism and the fact that women often it is a sort of default option isn't it if you're a if you're a female feature writer I mean and the other thing that's similar to that is is that when it comes to to fiction I mean the assumption that that everything is autobiographical there's a lot of um talk within publishing among female authors that this assumption that whatever they write is kind of their diary and that men are allowed an imagination and and that, that women women aren't I mean is that something that you I mean I have already asked you how your sisters informed the book but I suppose everyone's book is is informed by their life to an extent but but are you have you met, come up against any assumptions along those lines or or anything like that? Not really, no. Um, my sisters, um, as, we, as we talked about earlier, both of my older half-sisters have had breast cancer. And obviously my main protagonist, Sylvia, in my novel has breast cancer and is dying of breast cancer. Luckily, my sisters are doing really well and they're more than five years all clear. But it was really hard thing for our family when they were both diagnosed because it was relatively close together and they live in different countries have very different lifestyles so it was sort of out of the blue a big shock but I never I never set out to write about it and I think this is something that is really interesting about writing I think so much of it happens in your subconscious and I started writing the, the novel as a ghost story and um, I was trying to work out how Sylvia had had died and um, it became obvious to me <laughs> that it was breast cancer um, and I and I think you know breast cancer is is a, is prevalent and so many families have to go through this and I really wanted to look at an experience which um, touches lots of people's lives because um, it was important to me that she, that my main character hadn't been murdered or hadn't had this sort of extremely exceptional thing happen to her because I, I I'm trying to write a kind of love story about ordinariness you know um, and so it was so sort of breast cancer presented itself to me and it was only after I'd really written the book that I was like hang on a minute <laughs> you know my sister's had breast cancer and I, I've sort of mined this from my from my own experience but it was it was done on such a subconscious level that I at, at no point did I think really sort of articulate this is what I'm doing um, but I think you know I think the charge that women take stuff from their own lives is a way of kind of diminishing the subjects that women often choose to write about and um I think that that that's wrong you know I think that there's so much uh, drama and importance in um in the everyday which isn't to say that all women write about that but um many do and um but I also think that most novelists if they're being honest they do take some aspects of their lives and and rethink them so you know, no character in my book is somebody directly from my life. Um, but there are aspects of people. Of course there are, because you observe things and, and that's and that's what you do with it. So, um, so yeah. But I think it's a way of diminishing diminishing what uh, women do um, as writers to sort of say, oh, you've just, you've just copied that from your own, you know, from your own experience. Because kind of transmuting what you live through is, is surely the kind of point in a way. So, yeah. <laughs> It's interesting because, of course, the other way of diminishing is, is 
I mean, naturally, there is drama in the everyday and both mm-hmm. men and women write about it. But frequently when women write about the everyday, it, it becomes women's fiction, whereas when men write about it, it exactly. becomes a state of the nation exactly. novel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I love, I actually love Jonathan Franzen. And I think, you know, he's had a lot of stick, but I think his work is really beautiful. And But a, a lot of it is about the everyday. And if a, yeah. woman, if a woman wrote that, then she would, you know, it would be categorised in a different way. So it's um yeah it's, it is a way of kind of putting women in their box really um but you know the interesting thing is that w- women are the people buying books and reading books these days so yes think, yeah um, you know this has actually changed and the kind of grand male novelist is is no longer it, it's no longer such a trope in the way that it was so yeah so just back to your kind of writing trajectory you yeah. you, you went into journalism with this quite strategic idea of becoming a fiction writer becoming a novelist eventually you did the the famous kind of Faber Academy course can you tell me about that why you did it and how it was beneficial and if it was beneficial yeah it was beneficial it's a really great course you're in this amazing uh building in Bloomsbury um the tutor that I had Richard Skinner who who runs the course and I think set up the course is remarkable he's a very kind of he's just a lovely guy and very clever guy um and it was it was brilliant. I think it's just, you know, I had I did have this idea I want to be a novelist, but you know, actually sitting down to write a book is is a hard thing to do. It's hard when you're trying to earn a living, it's hard once you have children. And so it was just a way of sort of making sure I showed up and you had to produce something every week, you had to share it with other people. So it was really useful from that point of view. And there were some amazing um other people on my course who I've stayed in touch with and they're all just brilliant, lots of really, really brilliant writers. And um I wrote a novel when I was doing it. And it was kind of um, about a newspaper and um, I was never 100% happy with it. So I, I sort of finished a first draft and then I kind of put it in a bottom drawer and I had my son who's now seven and um, I just sort of got on with my life for a bit. I was really busy and I had another child as well. So I, I just couldn't, literally couldn't lift my head up really. Um, but it was about, I guess it was about 2017 that I, that I started something new and um we talked about this before, but I really, with the, with the first novel, I kind of hadn't really felt like I'd um, expressed, I hadn't, it, it didn't really feel like me somehow. And, and so that was my starting point was to try and produce something that felt like me, like my own sort of authentic voice. And so, yeah, that was what I focused on in the early stages. So, yeah. When you say it didn't feel like you, mm. what do you mean? And, and why didn't it feel like you? Were you emulating other people's style or was it um, the, the, the... It was more the subject matter. So I think partly because of Leveson, you know, the whole, the idea of writing about a newspaper now is, is quite a political uh, thing to do. And I was quite clear, that, you know, in terms of the fiction that I enjoy and the fiction that I wanted to write myself, that I wanted to write something um, closer to home, you know, more about the kind of everyday intimacies and struggles that we go through on on the home front because I, I think that's really profound and that's what I like to read so I with the first novel I felt uh particularly you know journalism's gone through so much in the last um 20 years and you were going to have to take in a lot of that to write something effective and it, it sort of took away from the kind of the sort of closer human drama that I wanted to observe so um it was it was a strategic decision really I can't I I was you know I can't really do that justice and maybe at some point I'd go back to that but um I was quite relieved in a way to sort of set myself within the domestic sphere and just sort of um stick to that 
Was it a bit of a wrench when you've put time and effort into something to then, because it's very, it's very hard to, once you've got those sunk costs, once you've invested that time, <laughs> to make that commitment of, I'm going to put this in a drawer and not well, do I, anything I, more with it. I think the thing about writing, and I think, I'm sure other people have said this to you, is that nothing's ever wasted. So there was def- there were definitely things from that experience of writing that first book that, that informed um, the book that's become For When I'm Gone. So nothing ever goes to waste. and. Um, can't really think about it as a job that's going to pay you for just what the hours that you put in because it's not really mm. like that it's unquantifiable um it's it's something that you do because you really want to do it um and um it's you know if you if you put in the effort then something does come out in the end but it's not necessarily a kind of linear route uh you know five hours means that I have this perfect you know chapter or whatever so it's um it's it's a funny thing from from that point of view, but it's uh, you know it's an amazing thing when when you're working on something and you and you and you're in the zone. There is there's nothing better really because you're just not thinking about anything else. So what what are what kind of writer are you? When do you? I mean, you still do journalism. You you you've got childcare to juggle. The when do you write? Do you have a kind of routine or do you just do it in snatches of time? Um, well, I, 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 I like to write fast, so I, I like to kind of clatter it all out, and um, I, I'm enjoying it when I'm writing fast. Um, and I like to write in the morning if I can. Um, so sometimes I get, I, I sort of make a cup of tea, make some breakfast, get my porridge, come upstairs, do a sort of hour before the day starts. And so, uh, what time is that? Like five or? No, no. Oh no! It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> seven yeah no um, I'll get my husband to take the kids for like an hour first thing and I'll go upstairs and he'll sort of do breakfast with them he's amazing he's really supportive and um but I find that once the day intrudes and I start worrying about whatever I'm doing um job wise that day and kid wise and um that it's much harder to just focus on the words so it's it's um it's sort of first thing is 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 best for me definitely and then later on if I've got something and I'm editing it then I can work all day but I think when mm. I'm working something the kind of initial thing it's I'm lucky to do an hour really uh two hours maybe um and I hope to produce like a thousand words and then you know that that for first draft and then I sort of feel that that's what I can do in a day really a thousand words in an hour is pretty good going though I mean yeah but I mean how many of those words are any good is the question but it's that kind of thing of trying to build up momentum you know like sort of getting something down and then you obviously have to go back and really work on it. And did you write the whole book before going to... Uh, well, what was your... Did you get an agent before you finished? What was your uh, kind I'd of strategy? No, yeah, I'd written the whole book pretty much. Um, and I was really busy. I'd just started a new job working for a business, actually, doing kind of um, sort of editorial kind of consultancy work for them. It was quite exciting, mm. but it was quite full-on. And um, I had written this book before and I was sort of sending it out and starting to get a bit of agent interest and I met my um my agent Sophie Lambert who's amazing and clicked with her and she sort of understood what I was trying to do with the book um and that was in late 2018 and then I got the book deal in 2019 I think it was April um so we did a bit of editorial work together so she had a few suggestions and um the ghost story stuff, the kind of magically real aspect of it was pulled back a bit 
And so it sort of went from there, really. I, I didn't meet loads of agents because when I met Sophie, I was I really liked her. And I, I, I think trusting your instinct and going with um, going with your gut is important. I know lots of people say that, but it, it, it's true. And I, I, I just sort of thought, I'm not going to do better than this. You know, she's great. So... And then we, we, we touched at the start on some of the challenges presented by um, the pandemic situation that we're in. Yeah. You mentioned the, the kind of support that debut authors have been offering one another. How is that kind of manifested? What do you mean by that? Oh, is this well, a social been, media thing? Yeah, it's mostly social media. So Because obviously you can't really meet up or we haven't been able to. But there's this, so there's this amazing um, Facebook group, Debuts 2020, and... There's a lot of sort of daily discussion in there and people are so supportive. So, you know, issues that are coming up in terms of the publishing process, people will post about and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of genuine support. And I do think that that's been the upside of this kind of weird year has been that people have really have really been there for each other and um, have shared their experience um, because it's it's been, you know, unusual times. And as I, I think in that sense, I felt lucky because I've met some really lovely people through it. So been good I'm very conscious that I've taken up quite a lot of your time so I'm, I'm going to let you go but before I do just just two final things yeah um first of all what what's next for you I mean if that's I suppose you know <laughs> you've just published a novel you'd be forgiven for, for wanting a, a bit of a break so uh um if that's not too stressful a question what's next for you what well, you actually, it, uh, it's really interesting so I'm, I've just taken on a project which I'm really excited about which is ghosting the memoir of a Syrian refugee called Hassan oh. and so um I, that's what's next for me so I'm I am working on my second novel but I've got to um, so I'm meeting Hassan at the moment, I'm interviewing him, and I've got to sort of write that within the next couple of months. So that's my kind of next big project. And it's it's going to be fascinating. He's a really remarkable, remarkable guy who's been through a lot. So um, I'm looking forward to that. And then and then I'm working on my second novel too. So um, yeah, I'm going to be busy. <laughs> and, um, and my final question, which I ask everyone which I which I have actually warned you about I quite often yes. get to yes. warn people about and then they get they're horrified like yeah horrified um, but um it's it's yeah. the uh if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice what would it be so I think there's two things one is exercise has such a huge impact on your mental health so if you, I don't think I ever sort of fully made the link so you know running yoga all those things they're just transformative in terms of how you feel and I use them now strategically all the time <laughs> and they're just really helpful. They make you feel better. And I don't think that was ever really spelt out to me that, you know, um, you know, I was quite a bookish kid, not particularly sporty. And so to realize that exercise is actually just really beneficial, it's been amazing. So I tell my younger self that. And also the other thing is my mum always used to say, um, one of the first things she'd been sort of taught in medical school was that um, if somebody makes you feel a certain way, they probably make other people feel that way too. Um, and she used to say this to me because um, it was something that they'd been taught in terms of patients and diagnosis. And um, but I never really took it on board. I used I used to feel like you know how other people made me feel was was down to me really. And I think now I'm older, I realise the truth of that. So you know, it's. Uh, it's not all about you. <laughs> that is uh, very good advice and not one I've had before, but very, very wise and, and rings very, well, thanks. very true. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Alison. It's really good.
And for everyone listening, for when I'm gone is out now. So thank you very much for listening to this series of the Sunday Salon. I'm going to be taking a little break now, but I'll be back in a couple of months with more fantastic guests. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Alice Azania. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please do think about leaving a rating or review. Uh, They are very exciting when they arrive. So have a fantastic September and see you soon. Mm -hmm.